Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the podcast with me, Steve Richards. Today we're going to do something different. We're going to put on the uh, podcast my live show, the most recent one in London at King's Place. Um, It was the last one, actually, I'm going to be doing before the Edinburgh Festival coming up in August. So for those of you who haven't been to these live shows, this is kind of what happens and then hopefully it'll all make sense. I come on and make the audience give their latest predictions on various twists and turns on political dramas, and you can find out what I asked them at the Last King's Place show any second. And then, like jazz, I kind of improvise about politics and what comes into my mind that evening. I always think these live shows really are like partly only partly, a column on stage. As political columnists, we would speak to the comment desk in the morning and have an idea, and then, of course, off you go. And quite often with these shows, the ideas for what I'm going to say come in that very morning. So I improvise for a bit. Then at the end, I ask the audience at the end of the first half to get into the mind of a politician and uh, present them at the beginning of the second half with a dilemma that politician faces and the audience so agile and brilliant over the years have been everybody from Jacob Rees-Mogg to Ruth Davidson to Ed Miliband in fact it was last month I asked the audience to be Ruth Davidson and the day after they brilliantly became Ruth Davidson as I presented them with a dilemma Ruth Davidson faces. She became pregnant and I think there was some spiritual, oh no sorry let's be accurate, she announced her pregnancy. Subtle difference. Anyway you'll have to listen to find out who I asked the audience to be on this occasion and then there's a kind of free flowing Q&A discussion in which we range in wholly unpredictable directions. No one knows in advance what form it's going to take. One of the reasons I find the stage so interesting and enjoyable really is that it more than any other media outlet kind of duplicates politics. If you don't script it, you are in the world of politics where you don't dare look ahead beyond about an hour because you're not quite sure what will happen. Anyway, this is Rock and Roll Politics live at King's Place very recently. Hope you enjoy it. Hello, hello, welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you so much. We've got so much to whoop about tonight, I can tell you. Um, Because we're going to... uh, Well, let me tell you... Let me uh, let you into a secret that... um, I was wondering, as some of you who uh, very kindly attend on a regular basis will know, and I don't know why it happens, but it usually uh, sells out, and it hasn't sold out tonight, uh, Rock and Roll Politics. And I I was wondering why, and then I looked at how I build it on the... uh, brochure and it said rock and roll politics a customs union special and um, 
I think there's probably a limit on a sunny Monday evening uh, to the, the, the hunger. But indeed, it is partly true that we are going to have a customs union spectacular tonight. It will be like a Dick Whittington on ice, but it will be the customs union. A light-hearted look at the customs union. And then, if it's okay with you, there will be a natural segue in the first half as we look at Jeremy Corbyn and pose the question which was posed after the local elections by journalists who always avoid cliches, have we reached peak Corbyn? And we'll explore that briefly. Then if it's again okay with you, we'll take a short break. And during that break, for those of you who've been before, you will know that sometimes I ask you to get into the mind of a politician. Last month, I think it was last month, I asked you to get into the mind of Jacob Rees-Mogg. I just need to utter the name and it gets a laugh, so I kind of <laughs> just throw it in. And um, the month before, I think I asked you to become the collective pro-European conservative rebels, and we explored a dilemma. Tonight, as a sort of neat segue from the first half, I want you to get into the mind, please, of Theresa May, if that's all right. A few, <laughs> few groans of despair, wondering whether they've made the right decision to come to the Customs Union special live at King's Place. And then I'll do order, order, in John Burko style, assuming he's still there. Has it changed? Politics moves so fast these days, you've got to sort of check before you go on stage that May's still in place, John Burko's still speaker. But anyway, I'll go, order, order, and we'll have a Prime Minister's questions. No, what am I talking about? I'm not Prime Minister. We'll have a question and answer session and a general discussion. So we've got tons and tons to get through. Um, before we do all that, we always begin with a couple of predictions. As regulars will know, um, this is the most unreliable barometer in the whole of the United Kingdom. Every prediction has proven to be wholly wrong conducted in this hall. But I'm going to ask you a very general question and then a specific. As we are doing a customs union spectacular, I'm going to ask you about that specifically in a moment. But just to check up, I know I've asked you this before, but this is such a fast-moving, bonkers story that I want to check up on the mood tonight on the most general question of all. This is not what you hope will happen, but what you think will happen. How many of you here tonight think that Britain will have left the European Union at the end of March next year? Prediction, please. Right, we're recording this for a podcast, so I've got to explain to those listening at home, as they say, that I reckon that was, what, uh, two-thirds? Two-thirds? And how many think, one way or another, Britain will still be in the European Union after March of this next year? Well, my original figure was wrong, because I think a majority... <laughs> Some of you have voted twice, um, <laughs> which is illegal. Well, for those listening on the podcast, because I say we're recording this, a majority here thinks we will be leaving, and a majority here thinks we'll still be in the European <laughs> Union. Which means, I think this is the first time at King's Place we are guaranteed to be right one way <laughs> or another, because one of those verdicts will prove to be true. 
But now is the moment that some of you probably haven't been waiting for. The customs union drama begins. As you know, there is going to be this transitional period up until 2021, after which we're going to be out of everything. Now, how many of you tonight think that after 2021, this is, I know this is getting deeper and more complicated, the UK will have left the customs union? Uh, or will leave it, the, the, the customs union? Well, as David Frost would have said, fascinating, fascinating, fascinating. For those listening on the podcast, very few, very few think we will have done. And how many of you think that one way or another, after 2021, Britain will still be in a or the customs union? Well, about 95% of the King's Place audience think we will still be there, which means Jacob Rees-Mogg can get out a bottle of champagne tonight. We will be out for sure, because these things are so unreliable. Um, well, that is really interesting, which I'm going to ask you one more. Sorry if you don't mind, because it is relevant to this. If it becomes clear in this unfolding drama which, by the way, I think jeopardizes Netflix because this Brexit drama <laughs> is a box set where no one knows the end, including all the star actors and actresses. They haven't been given the script. Uh, Theresa May doesn't know the end. But how many of you think if in the next few days and weeks before we're all gathered here again, it becomes clear that one way or another, Britain will either be in the customs union for who knows, God knows how long, or Theresa May presses on with what she calls a customs partnership, a policy described by Boris Johnson as crazy. Will cabinet ministers resign? Let me put the question specifically. Do you expect Boris Johnson to be in the cabinet by the Conservative Party conference at the end of September. Those who do, please put your hands up. Vast majority think even if what he sees as a crazy policy, he will still be in the cabinet. How many of you think he will be gone? Very few. <laughs> I can't, if you're right, very few, about five or six. I, mean, I can't wait to hear that interview where he has to put the case for the customs partnership. Can you hear it on the Today programme, you know, where John Humphrey says, but two weeks ago, Mr Johnson, you described this policy as crazy. And Boris, as he always does when he's in trouble, starts speaking in Latin, for sure. What about you? I'm crazy. I'm crazy. We're all crazy. We're all crazy. I, I, I can't wait to hear that one. How many of you think the Brexit secretary, David Davis, will be Brexit secretary by the time of the Conservative Party conference, early, uh, late September, early October? Uh, I reckon four-fifths. How many think he'll be gone? Again, a bit more than with Boris, but only, only about a fifth of the audience tonight, which means for sure he'll have resigned, probably tonight. People, incidentally, who I speak to in the Conservative Party think it more likely that David Davis will resign than 
Boris Johnson. It will be fascinating to see if she persists with the customs partnership, so-called what happens in her cabinet, because Boris Johnson, as we've discussed, has publicly condemned it. I can tell you, journalists have received scathing descriptions of it from other cabinet ministers privately. But, and this is where, if it's okay, I'll talk for a bit and begin a sort of counterintuitive reflection on Theresa May. She can be very stubborn. I was reminded of this or reached this conclusion very quickly. A couple of Sundays ago, I was on the BBC One Sunday politics programme on a panel where three panellists gather and are allowed to speak for about 15 seconds in a 90-minute programme. Um, and a fellow panellist said, I wish, uh, a Brexiteer, I wish Theresa May would show the same strong leadership over Europe as Margaret Thatcher and Tony Blair. And I said to her, but they didn't show very strong leadership either. And what Theresa May has displayed in some respects is part of a pattern. And indeed, if the Brexiteers wanted to frame an argument for leaving, which won't be widely shared in this audience, it is the political turbulence that Europe has generated since we joined. No prime minister has dared to show strong leadership over Europe, whatever strong leadership means. I mean, it's a virtually meaningless phrase, but so is weak leadership, because quite often the context determines how they behave. Tony Blair aped at times to be the pro-European prime minister, but if you remember, you see, people talk about May being opaque. Tony Blair very cleverly, actually, in the build-up to the 97 election, was both a fan of the single currency and an opponent. Um, I don't know quite how he pulled it off, but if you remember, to some audiences, business leaders, he said, look, we're going to join this thing, right? As, you know, we're pro-business, pro-Europe, pro-Europe. And then he would be filmed with a bulldog and writing in the sun, I'm going to save the pound. And he hid behind the economic tests devised by Gordon Brown and Ed Balls. But it wasn't at all clear. And he wasn't at all clear in his own mind whether he really wanted to take us into the single currency. Andrew Adonis, um, who is touring the country on his listening tour in favour of Remain, I don't know who he's listening to or who is listening to him, but he puts a really interesting argument that Blair should have joined the single currency and his failure to do so started the rot almost on Europe. Uh, that's a minority view, I suspect, but he wasn't strong, in inverted commas. John Major was all over the place on Europe and the euro. He didn't want to originally offer a referendum on the euro. He had to give in to his euro sceptics. Did him no good whatsoever. And Major was so weak, in inverted commas, not because he's a weak personality, but his position was so weak. Some of you might remember that during the 97 election, he had to say at one Tory campaign press conference, and they had press conferences every day in that era, don't bind my hands over Europe. He was talking to his own candidates in a general election campaign. So this twisting and turning, Margaret Thatcher hated the exchange rate mechanism, 
joined it in the end because she was forced into it by senior cabinet ministers. So May twisting and turning over Europe is not unusual. She is unusual for two reasons. One, very counterintuitive, which is in some ways of all the prime ministers, and this is not necessarily a quality in the position she's in, she is in some ways the most stubborn of the lot. I'm told, for example, that Amber Rudd, when she was fleetingly Home Secretary, dared at one point, and Amber Rudd was terrified of Theresa May, dared at one point, after the election and May's authority had been diminished, to go to May and say, look, this immigration target is not feasible. And at the very least, can we get the student numbers off the people coming in? And May just looked at her with a steely glare and just said, are you suggesting we change my immigration policy? And Amber Rudd just said, thank you very much, and left the room, and didn't dare challenge it. And there is a linear quality to Theresa May, which is partly admirable. I think she feels that if she says something out of integrity, she has to deliver it, even if it looks as if it's going to take the country over a cliff. It's a sort of strange form of integrity. But um, so there is a persistence with a plan once uttered. It wasn't her who set the immigration deadlines at the absurdly impossible levels. It was David Cameron, but she felt she had to deliver it. And here's the other odd thing about her. Really smart, strategic prime ministers are incapable, really, of showing strong leadership over Europe because their parties are split. The country is often split, and the newspapers are erupting on a daily basis, now, of course, hourly. And so they do, the best and clever ones do, what Harold Wilson used to say when he was prime minister in relation to Europe. When asked what his policy was, he used to say, I keep all options open. And by that, he meant he would twist and turn. But I think always, or nearly always in his case, he had a long-term objective. May did something quite odd, and it still hasn't been fully explored. At the very beginning of her reign, when she was at her strongest after that insane leadership contest where all the candidates killed each other and she was the only one standing, she was in a position to display strong leadership over this issue. And yet she was terrified. At the point where she could have, and it would have been tough, and it would have been courageous, but no one would have challenged her. At the point where she could have kept all options open, she closed them. So her first utterance on Brexit was not that banal phrase, Brexit means Brexit, that phrase that she repeated to the point of absurdity. But she said before that the cabinet all met at Chequers. Uh, soon after she became prime minister, they all gathered round a table pretending to like each other. And she said then, uh, her only soundbite was, my first red line is to stop free movement. That cannot carry on. Now, when you say that, 
and she had grounds to say it. There's no doubt it was an issue at the referendum, huge issue. It has all kinds of consequences. She couldn't utter the words, but it means you're out of the single market and um, all kinds of other things. So within days, she had begun to lock herself in, and because when she utters something, she feels compelled to enforce it, there was really no going back. With the customs union, and this is a customs union spectacular, um, she took a slightly different course. She couldn't utter many words about these deep areas of economic policy and Britain's place in the world. She couldn't really follow it through. So in her first big, big speech on Brexit in January of last year at Lancaster House, she spoke about having an associate membership with the customs union. Now, I'm an associate member of a tennis club, and all it means is you can never play tennis there. I've no idea what other <laughs> benefits it gives. I think you're allowed to go and have drinks there once a year or something. But it's an utterly meaningless title. And she kept it vague. She couldn't quite let go of it because she was not stupid and was aware of the consequences of letting go. But at the same time, she was insisting that Britain would be able to negotiate its own independent trading arrangements, which means she'd have been bloody lucky to get associate membership of the customs union. Um, she wouldn't have even had an annual drink on that basis, as I do with my associate membership of a tennis club. So here was someone who could be very stubborn, seeking wholly contradictory ends. And as a result of that, with the clock ticking nightmarishly, you can imagine what she must think at three in the morning. What, what am I doing? Where am I going with all of this? She suddenly finds she has to keep all options open. At a stage where she is weaker because she lost her majority in that election, she tries to become a figure of cunning and deviousness, but it's at a point of weakness. She has to do so because she has focused so much on the easy bit, the ends, but the ends now have become a trap for her. So she could get everyone to sign up to the end of a soft border in Northern Ireland. You're not going to get a cabinet minister resigning in December uh, insisting that Northern Ireland must have a hard border. You can imagine, you know, hard border, it started all up again, the bombs, it's all right. They're not going to do it. But the means is the problem. And so now she is focusing on the means and she has to keep all options open. As the audience tonight here has predicted, it could well be that the option she opts for is this now, she's got a fallback position. She's got a plan A, her customs partnership, plan B, that a sort of Star Trek technology will descend and sort it all out, and a plan C, which we stay in the customs union for longer. And each of them are fraught with difficulty, and it is really interesting how she seeks now, having been so stubborn in the early phase when she could have been stronger, 
stubbornness isn't strength. The length she's going to to keep all options open are surreal. I don't know if you've clocked what's been going on today. I'm sure you have. But, I mean, she sent one of these Brexit subcommittees to the border of uh, Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland uh, to see whether their technological, what's it called, Max Tech or whatever it's called, can work. They feel, I'm told, these people who've been sent to the border like sort of naughty school children who have a mission, homework, to prove that their policy can work. And she is sitting there in number 10, hoping David Davis is one of them wandering up and down this border with his <laughs> mobile phone to see whether he can track cars going back and forth. And I mean, it is crazy. But she hopes that they will return and agree with clearly the conclusion she has reached, that it is wholly unworkable and that the EU wouldn't buy it anyway. But she is desperate to bind her cabinet in to that conclusion and has a hell of a long way to go to do so, which is why that lot are wandering around the border and the other committee is kind of looking, I don't know where they are, at the moon probably, trying to work things out. But it is really, really late. And certainly now a growing number of Conservative MPs assume that the so-called meaningful vote on the deal won't take place until December. They don't think the deal will be ready in October for a meaningful vote. What, what is it? I mean, this meaningful vote is another surreal layer to the whole thing. I mean, what, as if the House of Commons would vote to have a meaningless vote. But the vote might prove to be meaningless because Blair, is, as Blair and others have pointed out, it could be that the deal is so vague at this point, they'll be asked to vote on a vague deal. They won't call it that, you know, the, the act, the Brexit act, the vague deal, but they'll call it something. And then we leave, and then they really begin the detailed negotiation, but at which point we're out, and no one, no Remainer, no Eurosceptic can do anything about it. Some now have reached the view, and this is, was common around Westminster today, that what will happen is this, that the Brexiteers will decide that in the end, they'll accept it all, that leaving uh, next March will be enough to have their street parties, spam fritters and all kinds of things from the 1950s to celebrate Britain leaving. And then they can revisit it once they've dumped her. The expectation is she will go in a couple of years' time and revisit all these issues again. Now, maybe that will happen. She seems to have got cabinet agreement for staying in the customs union forever. Maybe that will happen. But, I mean, some of us here, probably, certainly me, have been watching these Brexiteers for much longer than is healthy. I'm talking about the Conservative MPs. And I don't know whether they will take this lightly. I don't think David Davis will take it lightly. He's resigned before in wacky circumstances. He was, do you remember, he was shadow home secretary under Cameron when the Tories were 20 points ahead in the polls. He would have been home secretary 
which is weird. It's one of the what-ifs, because Theresa May wouldn't have been Home Secretary. She, funnily enough, thinks Cameron would have punished her by taking her to Northern Ireland. But he resigned as Shadow Home Secretary uh, to fight a by-election on issues to do with civil liberties and actually about the right of Parliament to question the executive, something he hasn't put into practice. Now he's on the executive. But he could easily go. And so there could be political instability at the British level. And Theresa May has then got to sort it all out with the European Union and then come back here and have these votes. I think it is, as I said at the beginning, a drama where no one really can predict the end, not even the gathering here tonight. No one knows. And I don't think she has fully decided the course she is going to take yet. But she will have to do so in days. And then it will be over to Parliament. And that will partly be about Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party. And he too faces a situation this is my segue into have we reached Pete Corbyn. He too is in a situation which many Labour leaders have faced. And I bet there are many in the audience here because I sense you probably are on the kind of remain wing of things. I, what do I know? Um, frustration that Corbyn is not more devout in his passion for this area. But I suspect some of those outside Parliament Tony Blair and others, who are asking him to be more robust, wouldn't be if they were in his position. He too faces a series of dilemmas because of the divisions between his voters. And here you see you've got kind of people who were passionate pro-Europeans like Ed Miliband and Caroline Flint in Northern Seats saying all hell will break loose even if we vote for a single market which keeps free movement going. So he too has to manage tensions and it's not his natural forte. Managing people, managing in expedient ways is the one, well actually not the only one thing Corbyn never experienced as a politician. He could enjoy the purity of his convictions and not worry about anything else. Now he's got to worry and think it through. My view, uh, dangerous to predict, is They've already moved to a customs union. That really means the customs union. I wouldn't be at all surprised if they move further to the single market. They have one opportunity to bring this government down, and it would be an implosion over Brexit. There is no other route to power. By 2022, Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell will be about 95, and it's kind of getting too late. But if they were to generate a crisis now, next few months, who knows? And that propels them with great irony towards a greater, I think, pro-European position. On this question of have we reached peak Corbyn, it's just a ridiculous question. I mean, what does it mean, peak Corbyn? I, mean, I, I, what, I, I know what it means. It means, you know, he's, he's now going to lose support. The answer is nobody knows in the same way. I kind of some columnists, you know, who predicted he would get about 10 seats at the last election have now decided to write him off again. It was as if, the, you know, who, you, you, it's impossible to tell. But I thought just a bit of reportage, which was quite interesting. I'm doing a Radio 4 programme about Corbyn, and 
had finally got hold of John McDonnell to agree to do an interview for this programme. And he insisted on doing it. There was a Labour Economic Policy Conference on Saturday at Imperial College in South Kensington. And he insisted on me interviewing him there. And to be honest, my heart sunk because it was a Saturday morning. I wanted to do the park run, the, you know, the 5K park run, which I'm sure you all do, looking at the average age of the audience. And um, the cup final was on, you know, and it was a sunny day. There was a wedding as well, wasn't there, or some <laughs> description. And the last thing I wanted to do was get in the tube and go to this bloody thing in South Kensington full of earnest people in a windowless room having their own customs union special. Um, but I'm really pleased I went because the event challenged some orthodoxies about Corbyn and McDonnell. And I was quite impressed with the event. Here are the orthodoxies it at least challenged. No more than that. I'm not saying they're on a route to power or anything like that. But here are the orthodoxies it challenged. The first thing that many people write and many Labour MPs think is that this duo and those around them are really only interested in controlling the Labour Party. They're not remotely interested in government. I think that is rubbish. Clearly, they're interested in controlling the Labour Party. It's an unleadable party, and every leader has sought to control it. Blair did, Gordon Brown did, and they are. And it's not surprising when there have been endless attempted coups against them. But more than that, this policy-making session um, was, was quite serious and thoughtful. It wasn't showy and shallow. And these people giving up their weekend, sunny weekend, to do these things are not doing it for a laugh. I can tell you there were absolutely no laughs there. Um, they want government. John McDonnell, for sure, wants to be Chancellor. I think Jeremy Corbyn might be a bit more ambiguous about being Prime Minister. But they are not in it just to seek control of the Labour Party. The second cliché about them is that they just listen to each other in an echo chamber of total futility and only accept adoring crowds at these gatherings who all say the same thing. The keynote speaker invited by McDonnell was the former Director General of the CBI, Adair Turner. And Adair Turner, who was a member of the SDP in the 80s, as he himself said, he's quite a radical and the speech was quite radical. Um, but he's absolutely part of the establishment. And he told this audience things they didn't necessarily want to hear about the challenges of an individual country going it alone in various ways in a global economy, about the futility of just taxing one income group. He was a great fan of tax rises, but he said it had to be spread much more widely. And McDonnell was nodding and taking notes, and the audience received him well, politely, and that generated a whole series of workshops. I was planning to leave this windowless conference, but I went to some of the workshops, and that exposed another myth that they are completely stuck in the 1970s. All of them were forward-looking. Many in this audience would disagree with the policies they were exploring, but they were looking at forms of ownership, for example, emphatically not based on the 1970s model of nationalisation, 
They were looking at employees having a greater say in companies, but it was more the German model than any other that they were exploring. And as I say, you might all disagree with it. It might all go nowhere. But I don't think such an event would have happened in the 1970s on the far left. So this might mean nothing, or it might mean something. What I think it does mean is that demonization in itself doesn't get us very far. It's very easy to write a column. You could do it in two minutes. You could do it during the interval. Try it. About how useless they are, how dangerous they are, how incompetent they are, how stuck in the past they are. That's easy, easy stuff. But I think, in a way, it's much more interesting than that. I always thought the New Labour era was completely misread. The BBC and others going wholly about spin and control freakery. That was part of it. But there was a much more interesting saga of a group of people who had been out of power for 18 years nervously, tentatively trying to change things and not entirely sure whether they would get away with it. And there was a much more interesting saga than spin and control freakery. And with this duo too, there's a much more interesting story about how at the end of their careers, they have to work out the degree to which they opt for some expediency, which I think they're going to do over Brexit, and the degree to which they retain the radical verve that has driven them throughout their lives and political careers. And I think the way they work that one through will be complicated and not straightforward for them or those of us watching. And also how they manage, because they're going to have to, a mass membership party. It's a totally underexplored theme because we're not used to mass membership parties. We're used to parties, everyone dying, and there's about one member of each party. They've got hundreds of thousands of these people. How do they police them? How do they control Twitter? You can't. But that is part of the anti-Semitism saga, their inability to control hundreds of thousands of people who've signed up in recent times. So anyway, I just think it's interesting. I don't know whether they're going to uh, fall in the coming years, whether Corbyn will go back to his allotment. Someone close to him tells me he yearns to go back to his allotment and just grow courgettes for the rest of his life and have nothing to do with this nightmarish job he's got. But of course, others say he is absolutely now hooked and determined to stay. It's not at all clear they could win. Polls suggest they're behind. But I think they are more interesting, perhaps in dangerous ways, than caricatures suggest. Finally, this stuff, blimey, we're running out of, we're over. If you could now just have a drink and become Theresa May, it's a metamorphosis that is painful, and uh, you probably will need a very, very stiff drink to get ready for it. And then in a few minutes' time, we're going to explore her mindset. We're going to get into the mind of this prime minister as she navigates a form of hellish terrain, I think, unprecedented for any prime minister since 1945. This publicly shy, awkward figure, as we saw during the general election. But as I said, in some respects, stubborn. In a context in which she has no space to be stubborn. So if you could become her in the next five or ten minutes, that would be great. 
and then we'll all get back together again and explore the nightmare that she's living. As I said, it was not meant to be fun tonight. This is the Customs Union <laughs> special. See you in a few minutes. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Welcome back. We're having a Customs Union spectacular tonight. Thank you uh, for staying. Uh, and I hope you've all become Theresa May during that short break. And I'm going to give you a couple of minutes longer to become Theresa May. Got a few uh, kind of announcements to make. Um, there's a politics festival coming up here at King's Place, organised by myself, my friend and colleague Ian Birrell, and of course King's Place. And it's on from Friday, June the 23rd to Sunday, June the 25th. It's being opened by John Major. It's, he's going to talk about Brexit. It's going to be a Brexit special, not a customs union special. It's going to be closed by Caroline Lucas of the Green Party on the Sunday. And in between some of those taking part, Chukarumuna, Nick Clegg, Jeremy Hunt's here, Liz Truss, Helen Lewis, Ian Dale and Jackie Smith are going to do their podcast. Ed Miliband's going to do his podcast. Andrew Adonis will be here talking about probably Brexit, amongst other things. Emily Thornbury's coming, Paul Mason's coming. It's going to be great food, wine, music, the whole lot. So you must come. We've had a party tonight on the Customs Union. That's going to be a weekend of partying. And that, as I say, I think it begins on June the 23rd, and tickets are on sale out there and on the King's Place website. And it will be a great, great weekend. I know it will. Now, Theresa May. Theresa May and the dilemmas that she faced. Before I ask you to act as she will act, I will set it up a bit because she's got some decisions to make over the next few days and they are complicated. It looks as if, I'm going to ask you in a minute, as if she might be tempted to go for this delay as long as possible to kick this custom union stuff into the long grass. But here are the twists in this never-ending thriller. That in itself doesn't solve the Irish question. This second half is going to become partly an alignment spectacular uh, because once you've agreed to that, in order to sort the border out, you've got to agree to sort of regulatory unification. All regulations the same in Southern Ireland, part of the European Union, Northern Ireland, part of the United Kingdom, and out. And that gets you much closer to the single market. So you have to address the Irish question by June at the EU summit. You've agreed to do that before you get on to the rest of the relationship with the European Union and your own massive compromise, this customs union extension, which cabinet ministers are agonizing over, isn't enough. You have to go even further. And your foes are circling. They have always been there, but they are intensifying. And your foes are, in some ways, less threatening than they appear. Jacob Rees-Mogg, um, 
I didn't get a laugh that time, he always gets a laugh, is both more formidable than he seems and less so. Less so in that he hasn't got many numbers in the House of Commons to destroy you. More so in the sense that he is an interesting opponent to have, if it becomes so. Tory party members love him. And he is, I've reflected on this before, but I'll mention it again because this could become part of the whole thing. He has taught me a real lesson about politics and indeed life. Politeness is a weapon. And he is the most polite of public figures, and that makes him dangerous. I remember at the last Tory party conference going to a fringe meeting where Rees Mogg was speaking, and the party members were foaming at the mouth with excitement at this figure. He was being treated like a god. And then a load of left-wing protesters came into the town hall, Manchester town hall, and went straight up, and Rhys Mogg was there in his three-piece suit, you know. I think he's only got one three-piece suit, but it's quite a good one. He wears it every day since the age of six. And <laughs> these left-wing uh, protesters went up to Rhys Mogg and said, you rich bastard, you fucking bastard, you get out of this country, you'll make a river. And Rhys Mogg just said, how absolutely interesting that you think I'm a bastard. We must have a cup of tea and talk about this. And by the end, they couldn't get at him because he was so nice to them. Um, now, whether that's a facade or not, I don't know, but it is powerful. And if you notice, when May's enemies, and they are her enemies, circle, they try and claim her as their own. So Rhys Mogg will say, I fully support the Prime Minister, of course I do, because I fully support what she promised to do. And while she promises to do and carries out what she promises to do, she'll have my full support, which implies that anything that shifts from that position is an act of betrayal. And betrayal in politics is the most emotive word. So she risks inflaming an internal war I'm told that she is utterly obsessed, amongst many other things, of trying to keep this party together through the next few months. So that's one element. The other, as I say, is you, Theresa May, having made the leap of your life in putting the case for staying in this customs union for longer than you had intended, will have to make an even bigger leap to get that soft border in Northern Ireland agreed with the European Union. And you will then have to come back to your party and explain why you've done it. You, Theresa May, who regard public declarations as a bind of loyalty, will have to turn on some of the things you have promised and said you would deliver in relation to Brexit. You, Theresa May, will probably have to face a cabinet revolt of some proportion. Here tonight, we predict it will be small. There will be no resignation, which almost certainly means there will be at least one. Um, and that in itself could generate turmoil. You are a fragile leader in a hung parliament. That is the position in which you now make your moves. And in that context, could I ask how many of you, Theresa Mays, are now going to stand up in the next week or so, and I think it will have to be the next week or so, and say, I, Theresa May, are now 
proposing that the only route towards a soft border with Ireland is that we remain in the customs union until the technology is in place to guarantee that border. Your Theresa May, please put your hands up if that is the policy you're going to take with you over the next few months. For those listening at home, a majority of Theresa Mays are putting this forward. And how many Theresa Mays are not going to do that out of interest? About a third of Theresa Mays are not going to do that. Well, I, th I think that's very interesting. I've said that this audience is wholly unrepresentative of the country. I think it is entirely representative of Theresa May's own internal head. <laughs> uh, many congratulations. I think collectively we have crept inside a head of conflicting thoughts. Now let me ask you this, especially the Theresa Mays who think this is the way forward. In order to guarantee that soft border, it all goes back to Ireland. Ireland's now driving this. How many of you agree to a further set of proposals that gets us close to staying in the single market? Theresa Mays, who agree to a further, and then you've got the soft border sorted. About four, oh no, but a, few, a few more, about eight Theresa Mays moving towards that position. And how many Theresa Mays stay no more than that customs union leap? Just raise your hands if you don't do anything else. That's interesting because you Theresa Mays who don't do anything else don't solve the Irish question. So could one of you who put your hand up about not doing anything else explain how you're going to negotiate with the European <laughs> Union, please. Uh, yes, there's a very brave Theresa May over there. If you could just wait for the mic to come and explain this. So do you agree that you're in the customs union because this is a customs union special? Absolutely. The situation is quite clear. The trade between Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland is 1.6% of Northern Ireland's trade and it's 1.4% of the Irish Republic's trade. The only two items that go across the border are Guinness and milk. Easily managed. End of discussion. Thank you. Well, we can all go home. It's sorted. It's sorted. I've got Theresa May's mobile. I'll give it to you. And, and if you just tell her. But uh, could you give the mic back, please? You're on the Today programme at 10 past eight. So are you willing, Theresa May, to impose a border on the basis that all that transpires between the two sides is Guinness. Yes, because it's easy to get the uh, owners of the Guinness lorries to register them. And, um, and there's, anyway, there's, there's the same Are you willing to jeopardise the Good Friday Agreement? I'm being John Humphreys now. This is not me. I'm just being rude. Um, are you willing to jeopardise the Good Friday Agreement over this? I don't think it jeopardises it at all. It does, because you create a border which will, the, the, uh, many people think will generate terrorism within minutes of a new border being established. All we have to worry about is the Guinness and the milk. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Mrs. Ms. May. Uh, I, I had no idea it was as straightforward as, as, as that. Well, that is one way forward. I, uh, somehow, well, I can tell you that is not her view, uh, with every respect. 
And in fact, you might have read about this, but I've heard quite a vivid eyewitness description that when last week she invited all the Conservative MPs in for a sort of presentation, and this is so surreal what's going on, a presentation of her various options. As you might have read, Jacob Rees-Mogg stood up and basically said what you said. You know, why are we worried? And apparently he said it'll all be fine, you know, a bit of Guinness and a couple of cows and it'll be fine. And she just glared at him and said, I don't share your optimism. And apparently he crumpled. I mean, he he loved it. It was like being back at Eton and being caned. (laughs) I mean, you know, um, he he wanted to ask another rude question so he could be punished even more. But the MPs witnessing thought it was quite significant because she has been so concerned about wooing that wing of her party. And this was a moment where she challenged, with every respect, that wing of her party. And Tory MPs leaving that private briefing were pretty convinced that she had certainly rejected this technological thing, you know, a bit of Guinness here and there and the rest monitored on a mobile phone, and that she wanted this customs partnership at that point. Uh, Maybe it's changed again now. She's going to just stay in for as long as it takes. But that is, anyway, that's interesting. That's one way through it. But here's another twist and a risk for her, which is this. If she stays in for any significant length of time, and it would have to be significant, this technological mythology is not ready yet, there will be a general election. And a party could come in that keeps us in the customs union. And so this dream of the Eurosceptics will have gone. So while she faces the dilemmas that we have explored, and I think you're right, she's going to resolve it by just kicking it into the longer grass, these fervent Eurosceptics, again, with every maybe there is a Guinness-related solution, also face a dilemma. Some of them, frankly, will be tempted to go for her and get a change of leader. And here, if it's all right with you, I'd like you just briefly to switch to becoming collectively the rebels, the the Eurosceptic rebels. We've explored here before the dilemmas of the pro-European conservatives, which incidentally are as intense and complicated, it's another episode in this Netflix box set. But it seems to me that the hardline Brexiteers will be in agonies over all of this. Could you just become all of them? There's about 60 of them in the House of Commons, and that is enough to trigger a leadership contest. And some of their heroes would stand and transform the agonies they are going through, perhaps. How many of you, 60 hardline Tory MPs, Rees Mogg plus 59, would challenge May if she makes these leaps towards the softest of soft Brexits? About about a third? Uh, uh, In the next six months, when it becomes clear she's going for this soft option. Oh, more, about a half. Blimey, God, we're, we're, in, we're in turmoil. We're in turmoil here. 
Why? Some of you put, why would you do it? Someone who put that, yeah, at the back there. If you don't mind just waiting for the mic, someone is running at about 100 meters sort of record-breaking pace. Well, you just said it. If they don't go now, when? She, kiss it. she kicks it into the long grass, there's an election, and they see it walking off down the road. They have to go now. Yeah, that's it. I think you've got into their minds very well on one level. But I don't know who. On one level. Well, you've got into re, you know, some of their minds. I think they, in, for all their apparent self-assurance, are in agonies. A lot of them have placed faith in May. People like Bernard Jenkin, some of you might hear in, on the radio about eight times a day, is a hardline Brexiteer, but his wife is a really close friend of Theresa May, and he would find it agony to remove her. And yet they see, and these people are, were born paranoid. <laughs> you know, it's a sort of Macbething. If they didn't get their milk, they would be, you know, they would want to kill. And, and now they see this dream that they had realized. You could sort of almost understand it on one level. The dream that they realized on a, a referendum morning, perhaps slipping away. And I think some of them are losing patience now at this point. Not until now. They're starting to worry about May. They think she's wobbling. I'm told, by the way, the biggest influence on her now, she sacked Nick Timothy, her advisor. It's her husband, Philip May, who spends all his time in the city and with business leaders and all the rest of it. And my guess is he is one of the factors that's leading her towards this soft Brexit. So do they kill her? And it is, it is part of the Shakespearean drama we are living through, because if they did, they probably could. A new leader would surface in exactly the same context as her. They could probably get in a Brexiteer and find he or she has no majority to realise their dream in this parliament. So I, my guess is she's going to stay and try and find a way through. And this parliament will stay. There's quite a lot of speculation. Today there will be an election this autumn. Uh, all the political journalists were tweeting saying, my heart sinks at the idea of a general election. I was quite excited, actually. <laughs> uh, this was a pathetic figure, still excited by elections. But it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. For an election to be triggered, Conservative MPs will have to vote for it. And if it was triggered in a crisis of this government, they would lose. So they're not going to vote for one. This fixed-term parliament, one of the many things rushed through by that coalition government, has historic consequences. And one of them is you elect a parliament and you are largely stuck with it. So although there's a lot of speculation at Westminster today that the, the BBC are preparing already, they've having rehearsals and stuff, but that's because they've all got nothing to do. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. But if they change their leader in the build-up to this Brexit, whether it was, I don't know, Gove or some other figure, they would be faced with all the same dilemmas. So they are all, I mean, Theresa May is Macbeth, actually, because she will find that if she embraces the customs union, that's like Macbeth killing Duncan. 
you then find you've got to do something else and get rid of Banquo, and she will have to do something with the single market, and then she'll say, what about, where do I go next? We might as well stay in. And at that point, she's killed, like Macbeth. And so there are many, many people at the moment in Shakespearean positions. But she'll take, come, I was just looking, you have to check at the interval whether anything's happened, because things move so quickly. And a poll out tonight shows she's way ahead. So she will take some, she as in the Conservatives, not that the polls are remotely a reliable indicator, they're less reliable than the audience here, as a barometer. But anyway, it is interesting, if you get into their minds just for a half an hour, you suddenly enter Shakespearean layers of complexity. And I think everyone's going bonkers at Westminster, uh, the media and the politicians. We're all becoming totally... I wake up at three in the morning and think, I might have cracked it on the customs union. And, um, and then, of course, you haven't. So multiply by 10,000 what she's going through. I mentioned here before, I remember seeing Cameron during his renegotiation, so-called, of Britain's membership of the European Union. And Cameron, you know, used to go running in St. James's Park and all that kind of stuff. He looked about 80 during that renegotiation. He was going to Warsaw one night, Prague the next night, then phoning up Merkel and saying blah, 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 blah. And, you know, she has got a task 25,000 times more challenging than him. She's older than him, less fit than him. It's going to be tough, tough, tough. But my guess is... She's going to be around for at least the next two years. And on that totally flaky prediction, I'm going to say this, because John Burko is still speaker as we speak. By the way, have you heard he said, he admitted, he did say, what, did he, what has he admitted? It's not entirely clear. Sorry? I, don't, I think he said, he's admitted he said stupid. But I don't think he's admitted he said stupid woman. Um, so, anyway, he's still in place as we speak. And so I say, order, order. And this is the point where we can have a conversation. Anyone, any questions on anything we've discussed tonight or anything else? Who would like to open our session of question time where there is no bullying or anything? Yes, the guy there. As a die-hard Republican, I've had the most ghastly weekend, too. Um, and, uh, I you should watched, have come to the Labour Economic I Conference. Done, You'd yeah. have had a ball. I watched lie after lie after lie being perpetuated on the TV. And I wonder what you made of it all. What, sorry, what were the lies? Um, the impact of the royals on the economy, the impact of the royals on tourism, the impact of royals on feminism. Yeah. Uh, when you're bowing and scraping to people as though... They're not as though they're more equal than you. Yeah. Just, the whole thing's just yeah. bizarre. You know, you gave me... I, I wish I'd called this a royal wedding special. It would have been packed out <laughs> uh, instead of calling it the customs union special. I think you raise one interesting question. I don't know what the rest of you think. And that is, it reminds me uh, uh, of the centrality of politics. We've been exploring the nightmare of politics for much of the evening. But it is politics that bring about change. There have been some really idealistic columns written. I don't know, there was in The Guardian today, Matthew Dancona said this represented liberal, progressive Britain, uh, and so on. Well, it might do, but it doesn't change 
anything. In the late 60s, and historians are still doing it today, they say, you know, what changed Britain were the Beatles, the Isle of Wight festival, and all that. No, it wasn't. It was the reforms of Jenkins and others of that Labour government. The, uh, uh, the abortion changes, the uh, Jenkins ended censorship in the theatre. It was politics that brought about the changes, not rock music. It was the same with the London Olympics. I'm sure many of you disagree with this. But the London Olympics were fantastic and changed nothing. Two years later, London, uh, Britain voted for Brexit. You know, it's politics that changed things. So if we've had a bit of a negative evening on the politics front, the positive side of politics is that's where change happens. You can't do it through symbols. And however powerful those symbols were, and I've heard loads of left-wing people, not at that conference because they were, weren't watching it, but lots of left-wing people say, I was in tears, you know, this kind of modernity. It won't change anything, like the Olympics didn't change anything. Politics does. So while those Olympics were being held, politicians should have been challenging Farage and all those people, but they didn't, and that's what's changed. You know. Let's go to the front here, and then we'll... More at the front, as the mic is over there. Just wait for the mic. If just pass it along and then back. Uh, if you go that way, and then we'll go left and then up. Left, not necessarily politically, or maybe, who um, knows? There's a lot of hope from people. I'm one of these. It's a bit of a faint one, that we can just call the whole thing off. Yeah, what, Brexit? Brexit, we could hold the whole thing off, and they'll accept us back. What's your view on what the attitude is to the rest of the EU towards now, is that attitude, we'd love you back, or is the attitude, you've been moaning for decades and decades and decades, just bugger off? Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. I think, in theory, they would have us back. It would, if you think about it, be a massive coup for the European Union. Here is a country that's played around with them for decades, voted to leave, found it was such a nightmare, they pleaded to come back in. And I think they would facilitate a route back. But I just don't, I don't see how that route is navigated between now and March of next year. I think there is, because political paralysis is a possibility this autumn, there really is. I mean, the House of Commons would not vote for no deal. They might not vote for her deal. And then we're in what the cliche is, uncharted territory. And it is conceivable that at that point the politicians say, let the people decide in a referendum. Say that the Conservatives would be too scared to call an election. And that referendum could change things. The assumption of pro-Europeans is that a lot of the older people who voted last time will have died. <laughs> and younger people who didn't vote are full of remorse, as they should be. Five minutes to a polling station, they didn't vote. Will vote and that it could be overturned. I don't know, I would put that at a 5% chance. Would you put it higher? Lower, lower. So you haven't got that much hope of it. Sorry, do you mind the mic, so? Unfortunately, at the end of the day, it's the, it was the biggest vote we've ever had, and you're going to have that stabbed-in-the-back mentality would really rock the country going forward. Yeah. It's very unfortunate, but I think that's the situation we're in. Yeah. I mean, people like Ed Miliband, who is sort of mild-mannered, you know, he's like, oh, there'll be riots, there'll be riots in Doncaster, you know. And it is quite difficult, this one. 
And it is so, I mean, this is the ultimate Shakespearean twist, really, that you have in a prime minister and the majority of MPs a recognition that this is leading towards a cliff's edge, but they can't see a way of stopping it at the moment. Question here. Well, the Brexiteers are sort of, I think, have a vision of a free market, Thatcherite, radical break, and that uh, that's what Brexit is for, and that's what they will do. And so, two questions really. To what extent do they have a worked out agenda for that? And to what extent is Michael Gove preparing to position himself as both the unifier of the party who can lead a new Tory radical free market? Uh, yeah, we're talking about Macbeth. I think his wife would like him to do it <laughs> and to seize the crown. Uh, she was reviewing the papers yesterday. It's the first time I've seen her on two Sarah Vine. The, I don't know. I mean, I've mentioned here before, forgive me if you've heard it, but Michael Gove's candidacy last time was so bizarre. You know, he, his election launch, his leadership launch. You might have heard before me saying that I'd be a terrible leader. I would be. I have no charisma. I alienate everyone I work with, and I've just stabbed Boris Johnson in the back. Um, and then he paused and said, I'm standing to be leader of the Conservative Party. And you kind of think... You know, where is this going? Of course, it lasted about 24 hours. But you're right to raise him. I think he's in a quite... Theresa May, who loathed him and mistrusted him, has come to adore him and rely on him. But that could not be, in the Shakespearean world, anything to guide anyone. He could stab her tomorrow. Um, but I, I, I think at the moment he sees his role as reassuring the Reese Moggs of this world that he will sort it out at some point, that just let's get out of this thing and then deal with the rest. Sorry, what was your first point, the, the non-Gove point? Well, basically, I mean, linked to that, about the radical Thatcherite oh, yeah. agenda, and to what extent well, are they again, really Well, again, this is planning? such a twist, because they're all called, and Thatcher is their heroine, there's no question. But she was the one who created the single market. You know, she was the pioneer of the single market, which they all want to to leave. I, I actually don't think, I know there is a theory that they want to turn us into Hong Kong. I don't think they've thought it through to that point. I think they do believe in this Britain, uh, a self-confident, self-governing force, negotiating trade deals with reliable allies like Donald Trump. And they've kind of convinced themselves that this is a robust future path and nothing is going to change their mind. And if it doesn't happen, or if it is this soft Brexit, this argument will last for decades to come. We'll be having a customs union special here in about 50 years' time, as it, this is still being worked through. Honestly, it's not going to stop next March. I promise you, it's going to be 10 more years of this. Bloody brilliant for me, but a disaster for the country. Uh, yeah, o o over here, please. And then we'll sort of go back a bit, and then we'll stop. So my question is... One of the big political stories of a couple of weeks ago, but as you said, politics moves very quickly, is Windrush. Is that yeah. finished? Because, no, you don't. know, it ends with Theresa May, ultimately. And it was... I mean, you said it was David Cameron's policies, but it kind of was Theresa May's policies. And obviously, she's appointed a new Home Secretary who sort of said some things that have maybe not changed very much. Um, and I wonder whether there's more to go and whether she's sort of ultimately at the end of it. I, I don't think there is, as in, could it finish her off? But I think it was a very interesting sequence, that Windrush sequence, because it just shows, 
how multi-layered this whole issue is. It could have gone very differently, that Windrush story. Theresa May and others could have said, we are wholly unapologetic. We were doing this to get rid of illegal immigrants. And she could have had the full support of the Daily Mail. By the way, she, she re Paul Dacre is playing her like a violin. She reads that paper obsessively. And, and, and they could have kind of tried to fight a populist thing over it. None of that sequence happened. The male said it was an outrage. She had to apologize, albeit vaguely. You weren't quite sure what she was apologizing for. Amber Rudd had to go. And it, it, it just shows how these things can turn. Incidentally, I think the whole immigration issue is turning. It's going to be too late, probably. 5% chance, we agreed, less. But it's really interesting what's happening on this whole European thing that farmers, most of whom who voted out, are now saying, well, where are we going to get this labour from? You know, in Cornwall, there are these hotels. So, you know, you, if you went to the hotel, to you, oh, we're going to vote out. Oh, it's bloody, bloody telling Brussels telling us what to do. They're now closing because they can't get the waiters. You know, they were all from Eastern Europe. And so there's a real kind of shift going on of which that wind rush was quite an interesting and vivid example. Say, 10 years ago, it really could have gone the other way. Good for Theresa May, hostile environment, kick them out, you know. If there are a few mistakes, doesn't matter. We're being tough on these bastards. Didn't go like that at all. And so I think it was interesting. I don't think it's over, but it's not going to bring her down. It needed one casualty, and they got it. By the way, I'm told Amber Rudd is going to speak out on Europe at some point. And she's a passionate pro-European, so that'll be quite an interesting moment. Why don't we go to the front, and then one at the back, and then... We might have to end for this time. Um, just is this working? Yeah. Oh, sorry. Um, <laughs> well, I'll go to you afterwards. Yeah. Um, just leaning on from that on the immigration, do you think there's any she might move to become more liberal on immigration, and that might be where the fudge is? That they've got the immigration white paper coming out in time for the EU summit, and that she'll use that as a way of saying, well, actually, if I can get a deal on that, we're still leaving the single market in the customs union, but she can still paint it both ways. Do you think there's any chance of that I, I don't happening? think she will shift her position on immigration. I'm told at times she was the only one in the cabinet taking a tough line on some elements of immigration. You see, Boris Johnson, well, he's all over the place on all these issues. But at times, he's put the case for free movement. You know, I mean, depends what day of the week it is. I wondered, some of the Brexiteers in the cabinet are much less hardline on this than the backbenchers. Certainly, yeah. Boris Gove, yes. yeah, they're they not are. really anti-immigration. No, they're not. Um, they're not. Yeah. Gove will say, I mean, Gove is a sort of Tony Ben Benite. It's about the sovereignty of Parliament and things like that. He's not bothered about, it probably supports free movement. Boris Johnson says it depends on what day of the week it is and the audience he's addressing. But he's basically a liberal on these issues. She isn't. But she's going to have to move to deal with the Irish question. And that's why she's in this Shakespearean position of having to make these moves one by one and then finally she's got to make another one. Let's go back there and then that will be the last question. Yeah, thank you. I just wondered if the much vaulted centrist party, which there was another opportunity uh, in the last couple of weeks with Miliband Senior and uh, Clegg, 
uh, and um, I can't remember, a conservative meeting. Nicky Morgan. Nicky Morgan. Yeah. Is, is there any sense that that is a realistic possibility in this country? I don't know. There's, I mentioned that politics festival. Rachel Sylvester, a columnist at the Times, is coming to put the case for a centre party in one of the sessions at that festival. In fact, most of the Times columnists are in favour, but are not at all clear about how it comes about or what the policy prescriptions are. There's a lot of talk about it at Westminster, but no more than that. And I don't quite see how it happens. They, some of them say, well, you know, we're a bit worried because of what happened to the SDP. Well, dream on that you can get anywhere close to the SDP. The SDP had four former cabinet ministers of great weight and charisma, including Roy Jenkins, who did all those reforms in the 60s. They won't have an equivalent to that at the beginning, for sure. And so... I don't know, what do you think? I don't, see how, I don't see how practically it happens, given the electoral system we have in this country. Yeah, yeah. We'll see after Brexit, if Brexit happens. There is talk, wait until after Brexit. And I think some Labour MPs hope that Corbyn and Macdonald don't make these pragmatic moves. And there's such anger amongst younger people. There's an appetite for a different party. And those younger people who chanted his name at Glastonbury switch and chant, I don't know, some obscure Labour MP's name, Chris Leslie or something. Can't, can't quite see it, Chris Leslie live in Glastonbury. Um, but the, he's the type of person who is thinking about doing this kind of thing. We'll see, we'll see. Uh, but I like you, I can only see the difficulties. And the final question over there, please, um, the, the end row. Leading on from that, uh, what's the prospects for the Lib Dems? I think they should be doing better, gaping great hole in the middle, um, slightly better council election results. But, but what's your reading of the situation? I think it's really interesting with parties. It's like probably all our lives, you know, to keep going, you need momentum and a sense of purpose and dynamism. We all have it in this room, obviously. But the coalition almost killed them off. And they should have been much more aware of the dangers of that dynamic. I mean, I think Nick Clegg, in many ways, is a really thoughtful, he's a very nice person. But my God, was he naive about that early period in particular and the impact it would have. And it, it, and it lingers on. And then when you only have, after the last election, I think they only had, sorry, after the 2015 one, they had, what, seven MPs or nine MPs. They've got a bit more now, but not many more. That's tiny. When you're in the House of Commons and you're not even the third party, it's really difficult to build up a sense of, oh, come and join us, we're the coming force, you know. And with every respect to him, he's a, he's a, he's a decent guy and a thoughtful and often correct in his analysis. You know, this, I'm, I don't want to sound ageist, but I think Vince Cable at the next election will be 80, now, I know Gladstone carried on to 105 and things, but it is really difficult, I think. It is the demands made on people today with the media and everything else makes it quite difficult. And I think he's finding it quite difficult, actually. I think he was very attracted to the... Well, obviously, he stood for the leadership and regretted not standing several years ago when he thought he was too old. And then many years later, he stood and won. But he, I think he finds managing even that party quite irritating and annoying. 
He had just written a thriller full of dramas and sex scenes and things, which he was touring book festivals, promoting, and suddenly he had to sort of deal with an MP cross about something, you know, and it's, it, it's very, very difficult. But in politics, nothing stands still, and they have a clarity about their position in relation to Europe, which may, may help them in the dramas that are about to erupt over the next few months, and maybe they'll rediscover a momentum. Who knows? Who knows? And if it's okay with you on that very definitive question, we better draw things to a close. Who knows? None of us, I think. And whether it's the fate of the Lib Dems to the fate of this whole damn country. But we will discover as the months develop. And um, I hope to see you all next time when I won't bill it as a customs union special. But I promise you we'll talk probably more about this fast moving Brexit saga, the twists and turns of these various leaders. And if any of you are up in Edinburgh for the Edinburgh Festival, I'm going to be there for two weeks. I'm going to do a different show every day. And so that means if you're there for two weeks, you have to come 14 times. <laughs> um, I'm not that daft. I might have billed this as a customs union special, but I'm not going to, I'm going to fill that theatre every night. Anyway, thank you so much for coming today. You've all been brilliant. As ever, it's the last bit when you take part that's the best, not my phase. Thank you for coming and see you next time. Thanks so much. Bye. So that was Rock and Roll Politics live at uh, King's Place and um, hope you enjoyed that one. As I said at the end, the Edinburgh Festival, I'm live every day for the last two weeks of the festival and tickets are now on sale on the Fringe website. And of course, that politics festival with so many names I mentioned at the beginning of the second half of that show coming up uh, in June and all the details are on the King's Place website. Thanks very much for listening. Do subscribe and I'll see you next week. Bye.